Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I want to start off with a, a story that I heard a number of months ago and completely forgot about it, and now I can't stop telling it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so just because it's, it's one of these stories that I think uh, sums up a lot of life and how to go through life. So, so the story I heard uh, in the name of Rabbi Biederman, who, uh, who reported this incident that happened uh, in Israel. So it's a true story, and um, there was a uh, the last bus out from a particular area, which was somewhat, I guess, uh, a little bit remote in Israel, and it was like the 11 p.m. bus, and a group of people were waiting for it, and the the bus doesn't show up, and the people are very concerned. They're they're, they're stranded. It, they they can't get home, and they don't know what to do. So so they wait. So it's 11:15. It's 11:30. They they still don't know what to do. And uh, they're getting more and more concerned, 11.45. And at around 12 o'clock, a bus, not the bus they're waiting for, like, let's making up these numbers, let's say they're waiting for the number 11 bus. The number 33 bus starts barreling through, and someone runs and waves their arms and stops the bus and, and says, please, you, you, you've got to take us, you know, we're, we're, we're stranded here, we can't get home. Um, and the bus driver says, it's out of the question. I, if, I, if I do that, I'm going to lose my job. I can't do it. So they, they don't know what to do, and they, they, they appeal to him once more. They say, please, we, we, we really need your help. And the bus driver says, okay, get on the bus. So the people pile on, and he drives them to where they need to go. And at the end, they're so grateful. They, they, say, to the, they say to the bus driver, thank you so much. And he says, listen, I have to tell you the truth. I'm really your bus driver. He says, let me tell you what happened. I got tired, I pulled over to the side of the road, and I fell asleep. And I was so late, and I knew that if I show up an hour late, at like midnight, you are going to hurl such abuse at me and yell and scream at me. So what I did was I changed the bus number, and I knew that when you'd see me, you'd have such gratitude. (laughs) So the rabbi points out something very amazing, which is that, look, look at, let's take a step back and just sort of like relook at this story. The bus is showing up at exactly the same time, right? It's the exact same bus, the exact same bus driver, and yet, in one instance, people could have been so angry, and yet, to the exact same set of stimuli, they're reacting with such gratitude. So, this is us, this is our life. And this is the power that we have. We have this power to decide how we are going to react to certain situations. And one of the sort of like, one of this, just the secrets to life really, is that you really can't control the results. But you can, first of all, you're responsible for the effort, but that, that aside. But you can, you, you do have power over to how you're going to react to things. And this is, this is an amazing, amazing gift that God gives us. And it, it, also, it also sort of like challenges us to reprioritize how we approach our lives, which is to say, how am I going to react to things? In other words, to really prioritize that. You know, we're so, we, we so tend to think of that as just sort of like 10th on the list. Like I, I want, I want, I want, I'm trying to get, I'm working, I'm working, I'm working. But, but what about just if you can get through a situation which is challenging and remain calm, how about making that into a celebration? Because I, I think that that is something to celebrate. If you can get through a, a challenging or difficult period 
and you can re- remain calm throughout. That doesn't mean that you're not working hard or really exerting yourself, but you're not panicking. You're keeping it, keeping it real during that process. That, that might be your greatest accomplishment. When all is said and done, you know, we, at the end of 120, um, you know, we, we stand before the heavenly court and, and we, you know, a certain, a certain verdict comes down. And I heard from uh, Rabbi Green something so beautiful, and this moved me so much when I heard it that I, I, I actually said it over as part of my father's eulogy. Um, which is, Rabbi Green asks this question, who are you? You're, you're not your body, because a person's body remains behind when, when the soul leaves this world. And you're not your soul, because your soul is a piece of God. So if you're not your body and you're not your soul, who are you? In other words, what stands before the heavenly court? So it's an amazing answer. He says, you are the sum total of the decisions that you made. That, that's, that is essentially who you are. You are the sum total of the decisions that you make over the course of your lifetime. And I think this very much gets back to what we were talking about just a few moments ago, which is how we react is, is a decision. And I think that we have to re-own the, the power of that and the responsibility of that which is that we tend to think that sort of like I am sort of a, um, you know, sort of like when a boat goes through the water, that sort of like that white trail behind is the wake. And a lot of people just tend to think of their emotions as the wake. In other words, they have no control over their emotions. That's just, that's just the wake that comes from the events that, that are happening. But what if we realize, no, no, wait a second, wait a second, the emotions and the yelling or the stress or whatever it is, that actually is part of my portfolio. That is actually something that I can manage as well. But the thing is, first a person has to be aware of it, they have to take responsibility for it, and they have to stay mindful of it. You know, the Bali Musar, the sort of like the, the, the masters of, 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 of you know, spiritual refinement, um, they they point out this 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 great thing, which is that you have the test, and then you have the test after the test. And the test after the test, most people aren't aware that they're being confronted with that because they don't even know that such a category exists. So, so imagine. Imagine, like, just, I don't know, just the first example that pops into my head. Like, imagine there's a, a moment where you could maybe speak badly about someone. Like, really, you're very tempted to say Lashon Hara. And you control yourself. And you're like, wow, that was really hard to do. But you got through it without, without, without saying anything. Amazing. Then you get home, and maybe your family is there, whatever it is, and you're, you know, everyone's talking about their day, and you say, you know, and, and I was going to really tell everyone about, and you say the person's <laughs> name, and how he did this to me, and how he did that to me, and how he's really like this. So that's an example of the test after the test, right? You pass the test, but now you have the test after the test. Now are you going to fall prey 
And because it's not over yet. It's not over yet. So then that's an example. But, but, but to, to be sort of up to that challenge, a person has to be, remain mindful. And it helps to know that there's this category that exists at all. Okay. So, you know, we just had this, this amazing, amazing holiday of Shavuos, which is the, the receiving of the Torah, the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And um, there's so many, so many lessons to learn. First of all, we have to know that a very interesting Rashi, Rabbi um, Moshe Shapiro, all of Shalom points this out, just, just the sort of the, the complexity of this, but well, it's, it's, it's not complicated, but it's, it's interesting. You see, we're supposed to um, go through life, and Rashi points this out, that uh, like the Torah is being given all the time. So, so th- this is one of the reasons why pinning down Shavuos is, is, so, um, is so deliberately vague in the Torah. For instance, all the Torah holidays have dates on the calendar. You know, like Sukkot is the 15th day of the 7th month. Rosh Hashanah is the first day of the 7th month. You know, Pesach is the 15th day of the first month. And then you get to Shavuos and there's no calendar day. It's unique. So we have to treat the, we have to treat the Torah like it's being given anew every single day. Now, you see this in a very interesting place in the Torah, which is that this, this this Rashi that appears that tells us that we, and it's, a, it's from a, a verse in the Torah that tells us that we have to treat the, the Torah like it's, like it's new every single day, we get that verse before we actually receive the Torah itself. We get that verse on the first day of the month of Sivan when we reach Mount Sinai as a people, but the Torah is not given until the sixth or the seventh day of, Mount, of, of, of Sivan. So from this, Rabbi Shapiro concludes something very amazing, which is that one of the conditions of being able to receive the Torah is understanding that the Torah is being given new constantly. In other words, it's not just a general teaching that, oh, one should go through life feeling as though the Torah is being given anew every single day. If you want to be able to receive the Torah to begin with from the outset, you have to understand as a precondition that the Torah is being given new every single day. And that's why we get that instruction before we even receive the Torah. And that, you know, just allows us, like, but how can something be, be, be given anew every single day? Like, how could that be? Because there's a divinity to the Torah itself. It's, the Torah is this miraculous construct. So if you go into the study of the Torah with, with that understanding, before you begin studying the Torah, then we're going to be able to really receive it and, and access, you know, multiple, countless levels that are contained within it. Remember, we're always saying that the Torah is the infinite condensed into the finite. And that the Torah itself, that the entire world is made out of the Torah. You know, one of the main sort of campaigns that I've been on is try to, trying to get through this, this message um, to the best that I can that, that the Torah is not a book. Don't think that the Torah is a book. There's a book form which, which contains the five books which we call the Torah. But the entire world is made out of the Torah. It says that the Torah existed before the world was created. And now I want to get a little bit deeper into this idea. You see... It's really... 
it's, it's, it's very, very deep. And the way a lot of people ask the question is the following. When the Ten Commands were, when the Ten Commandments were given, the Aserah Adibros, the when God spoke at Mount Sinai, the first word of the Ten Commandments is this word, Anochi, which is I. And it's Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God, your God. God spoke. And as and 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 as I heard Rabbi Dean Steinsold say very beautifully, for thousands of years people were speaking to God at Mount Sinai, God spoke back. Right? It was this amazing, amazing sort of like a declaration of his presence and it was a realigning of our consciousness that it wasn't something that just was um, God's existence was not just belief based it was not just a subjective sort of internal kind of like imagining of God all of a sudden the objective reality that we live all live in a world inside God became utterly utterly confirmed and utterly clear so this is, this is really the amazingness of it. You know, just as an aside, Rabbi Freeman was talking earlier this morning. He said that he heard a physics lecture from, I guess, one of our leading physicists today. And he said that a, a, an electron contains a photon, right? Um, or rather, a photon comes out of an electron... But if you look inside the electron, you don't see the you, you, you don't see the photon, and yet the photon comes out of the electron. But it doesn't seem to be inside the electron, but it comes out of the electron, right? So there, it's something. It's like something coming out of nothing, right? That's that's this is physics. This is quantum physics. So I was thinking, you know, we also say that the world that there was well. There was nothing, meaning to say there was no materiality, no physicality. And then God created the world. God created something out of nothing, right? Although the deeper people say that God created nothing out of something (laughs) because God is the ultimate something. (laughs) And then this world, so to speak, is nothing compared to God's something, right? But from our perspective, God created something out of nothing, right? So, So I don't know if anyone stood up at that lecture that the physicist gave and said, what do you mean a photon just emerges out of an electron? What, what do you mean? Like, this is, this is witchcraft. <laughs> you know, like, like, why should I believe such a thing? Because a, you can, if you believe that a photon emerges from an electron when there's no evidence of a photon existing in an electron, right? You don't also not have to use the phone on Shabbos. <laughs> in other words, you can, you can, there's no, there's, there's nothing that comes with the belief in that physics principle. Right? You don't have to desire your neighbor's car. <laughs> you don't have to stop desiring your neighbor's car to accept that. But, but, but when it comes to these sort of deeper principles about the way the world is constructed, why are people all of a sudden shaking their fists and crying out about various things? Because there's, there, there, there are implications. 
there are implications to 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 believing that. You know, there's a price tag, so to speak. <laughs> but but we have to understand what that what that means. We have to understand what that means. You see, I don't know about you, but I don't want to wear. I don't want to go to a black tie party in 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 a speedo bathing suit. I don't. I I don't. You know, it's, there's, there, there, there is something very beautiful about being in harmony with creation and with, with God and with God's will and, and to understand yourself as an extension of that. The, the idea that we have a soul, that's, a, that's an emanation of God himself in, in, inside of us. Like, what could be better than to be in harmony with the universe, in harmony with God. So, so everything gets complicated with this concept of I. And the very, because if, if I is just my definition of self, and if that's the ultimate grounding of my reality and my perception of reality is my own personal I, then I'm going to be very, very guarded about how I affect my eye, you know? But if I understand the, the ultimate eye, the realist eye, is the anochi Hashem Elokecha, that when Hashem speaks out and says the word I, and that's the ultimate eye, and that my eye is a subset or a, a, a part of that greater totality, then all of a sudden I'm linking my eye to his eye. And all I want is to live in truth. So, so I want to go deeper with this and, and just talk about it. Just, just what, is, what was the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai? Just get into that and, and approach it from a very, I think, a very particular interesting angle. Um, so this is my, kind of my own analysis. But, but the, first, the first letter of the Ten Commandments is the letter Aleph. And we all know that Aleph is the very first letter of the Aleph base of the Hebrew alphabet. And we know that Aleph stands for God because Aleph is one and God is one, right? Because it's the first letter. And we all know the teaching that Aleph is actually composed of three letters, two yuds and a vav, which add up to 26, which is the numerical equivalent of God's holiest name, yudke vavke. Right? So, on many levels, Aleph really represents, so to speak, God on some level. Okay, good. So, it's very appropriate that when God is sort of like speaking about the ultimate reality of the universe, the objective truth of the universe, that it begins with the letter Aleph. Right? That's, that makes a lot of sense. But, this poses a very, very big question, which is, as the Zohar says, the Torah is the blueprint of reality, and that God looked into the Torah before he created the world. So why doesn't the Torah itself begin with the letter Aleph? In other words, the book of Genesis should begin with the letter Aleph based on everything that we're saying. But that's not the case. It's just the Ten Commandments. The Torah begins with the letter Bez. Okay, so the Bez is the second letter. And, and it's fascinating that, Bez, that the Torah begins with the letter Bez. Because... Bayes is the number two, and two stands for duality, which means that 
from the very first letter of the Torah, God is telling you that he's created an environment where there's the illusion of multiple powers. Right? That there's already, in mystically speaking, this world is often referred to as the world of separation. Right? So two speaks, uh, speaks on this, this notion of separation. Right? Because there's one and two. There's, they're, not, they're not all grouped together in the same uh, number. So, so now, now interestingly, we have this idea that if the Torah is being given at Mount Sinai, yet we have this tradition that our forefathers and mothers, right, Avraham, starting with Avraham, was already keeping all the mitzvahs of the Torah. Not only was he keeping all the mitzvahs of the Torah, but even it says Erev Tavshilin, which is, it's a little bit complicated, I'm not going to go into it, but it's a very subtle uh, rabbinical law. So, Aram Avinu, a couple thousand years before the Torah has even been given, he's keeping all the mitzvahs of the Torah. So if it's being given at Mount Sinai, how is Abraham Avinu keeping all the mitzvahs of the Torah? Right? Okay. But what did we say? We said that the Torah existed before the world was created. And that God looked into the Torah and he created the world. So, so we're going to answer all these questions. We're going to answer all these questions. Um, you see, Rabbi Manus Friedman gave a, a very beautiful example about making blessings, and we'll tie this into the discussion. Most people think if you pick it, this is what happens. You pick up a cookie, which is this sort of neutral spiritual entity, and you say, You make this blessing, you acknowledge you know, the source of where this cookie came from, that it came from God, and you're able to elevate it from this sort of neutral spiritual state to this sort of sanctified state. This is what most people think, and it's not incorrect, but you can say deeper. <coughs> deeper is that God, God already fills the entire universe, including the cookie, <laughs> So you're not making the cookie holy because on some level the cookie is already holy. What you're doing when you make a blessing is you're revealing the presence of Hashem in that moment. See, like I always try to imagine, like, you know, if you can imagine after a shower your, your bathroom mirror gets all fogged up. So you, you, you wipe away the fog and then all of a sudden it's revealed. So this world, so to speak, the days of Breshis, this illusion of multiple powers... Right of multiplicity, when really there's only unity in the universe. But there's this illusion of multiplicity in the universe. What happens when you make a bracha is you're clearing away the fog. And you're saying, no, 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 no. Everything comes from Hashem who's right here, right now. Okay. So, so the Pasuk says, the verse says that God came down on Mount Sinai when the Torah was revealed. And he uses this, this, this Hebrew word, vayered, which means to come down, right? And I remember struggling with that because I thought, wait a second, what does it mean God came down? I don't like that idea. God's already here. What happened at Mount Sinai was God revealed himself. 
And then I saw Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, Alava Shalom, pointed out that the Targum translates that word Vayered, which means to come down as God revealed himself. So you see, they, this, this idea that God is already here, the Torah is already here. This is how Avraham Avinu is already keeping the mitzvahs. Okay, but, but then, but, but how is Avraham Avinu already keeping the mitzvahs if the Torah wasn't revealed yet, right? We're back to the initial question. So I thought of a way to explain this. A, a simple mushal, but here it is. I thought to myself, can you think of an example where something already exists, but it hasn't been given yet? And I thought, oh, you know, sometimes, like, you know, it's your birthday, and you know someone's bought you a present, but they haven't given it to you yet. And it's wrapped, and it's in a closet. It's waiting for you. (laughs) And so what do you do? You go and you find the present, and then you shake it to try to figure out what's, what's in the box, right? So Avram Avinu, so to speak, shook the box and said, oh, that sounds like a lulav and an esrik. <laughs> That's a, a, picks up another box. That sounds like shotness. <laughs> Rabbi Freeman said in the name of the Zohar that, that it, it talks about it, the same idea, but in terms of his ability to smell. You know, in other words, the idea is it's, it's there. It's, it's there already, because we say the Torah was in fact there already. Okay. So he was able to, to take that which was there already and he was able to understand it more fully. So now let's get back to Mount Sinai. Now I want to tell you something. One of my favorite Torah concepts, and we'll tie it into this, we'll tie it into the Aleph of Anochi Hashem Alekecha, the first word of the Ten Commandments, the first letter of the Ten Commandments, and to tie it all together. <coughs> the Ramban famously in his introduction to the Chumash, says that the Torah is black fire on white fire. So um, I love that teaching. And, um, you know, the, just the most basic level is don't, don't ever think that the Torah is just ink on parchment. Like, and that the parchment is some sort of neutral kind of environment. It's very much not what's going on in a Torah scroll. The Torah is black fire on white fire. So what does that mean? Black fire is that which is revealed in this world. Black fire is that which you can see with your eyes. White fire are the spiritual realms that are 100% there. You just can't see them with your eyes. Okay? So based on this, I wanted to say the following. Which is, you have the first letter of the Torah, which is the base of Breshis, right? Which is this, this world, which is the illusion of multiplicity, multiple powers, right? Because what does Bayes stand for? Bayes is two. So that's male and female. That's heaven and earth. That's good and evil. Right? That's this world and the next world. It's, and it's also free choice, fascinatingly enough. Because what is free choice? I can do this or I could do that. Right? Everything is already, the whole world and all of reality is all introduced with the first letter of the Torah. That's black fire. That's what's revealed. Bless him. But I wanted to say the following, because we know that God existed before the world existed, right? There was a something before the nothing. (laughs) So I want to say that there's a white fire olive before the black fire base. A white fire olive, meaning, remember, olive stands for Hashem. Olive is one, Hashem is one. 
So it was there, but it can't be seen. But it's there. So, <coughs> so for all of us who ask, why does the Torah begin with the letter Bez? I'd like to say it doesn't begin with the letter Bez. It does begin with the letter Aleph, but it's a white fire Aleph. So then, what happened at Mount Sinai? Now we can tie everything together. Remember, the first word that Hashem spoke was the letter Aleph, Anochi, right? I am, His existence. So there's a black fire Aleph. So I want to say that what happened at Mount Sinai was God took the white fire Aleph and He revealed it as a black fire Aleph. He took the Torah that existed before the world was created and he revealed that which was already here. Remember, that's why Avraham Avinu could keep the mitzvahs already, because it was already here. Right? He took the white fire Aleph and turned it into a black fire Aleph. He took that which existed but wasn't revealed and he made it revealed. Now, it's it's even more intense than that. Because, you see, there's a debate among the rabbis as to what God actually said at Mount Sinai. And there's many, many different opinions. I'm just going to give you just a, a, a few ideas here. Sort of like the, the Gomorrah says that God spoke the first two commandments and then Moshe Rabbeinu spoke the rest. Through God. Like it was... In fact, one of the things, I don't know if this is widely known, but it's, it's a very, very, very central, important teaching. Everyone should absolutely know this. God gave everyone prophecy so that we all heard God talking to Moshe. You see, so even though it comes from Moshe, we all heard that it was straight from God. So that's why it says that we believe in Moshe forever. Because we heard him accurately convey what God had told him to say because we heard God tell Moshe. That's, that, that's why it's so, our belief in the Torah is so carved into our bones because we ourselves understand the accuracy of it. So this is why, by the way, one of the ways that it's derived that there's 613 mitzvahs in the Torah. Because Torah is the gematria 611. And then if you add two, the two commandments that Hashem said, that's 613. So that's how they derive, that's how the Gomorrah derives that there's 613 mitzvahs. From the fact that God spoke the first two commandments. Okay. But there's another, there are other opinions. And I heard from Reb Shlomo that the deeper people say that Hashem just said the word Anochi, I am. And then that contained absolutely everything. Right? But then he says the deepest Kabbalists say that God just pronounced the letter Aleph. And everything was contained within that. Now what's so far out about that is that Aleph is a silent letter. <laughs> So how do you pronounce the letter Aleph? <laughs> In other words, how do you... We're saying that God took the white fire Aleph, that which is there but can't be seen, and turned it into a black letter Aleph, 
right? The aleph before the black fire aleph of the Beis of Reishis, and turned it into the black fire aleph of Anochi, Hashem Elokecha. He took that which was there and made it revealed. But how can you reveal the infinity of God? Same, same question. How can you pronounce that which is unpronounceable? <laughs> so now when we say that the Torah is not a book, when we say that the Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite, that it's this never-ending well of understanding, now we have an increased appreciation of what that means exactly, that it's this, this bottomless, bottomless, bottomless well, because God found a way to convey just this transcendent understanding of everything into a series of words and commands. So when you link up with the Torah, when you, when you make your eye into God's eye, and, and God is telling you how to do it through the Torah itself, then basically you, you are booking a ticket on a rocket ship. And you're just, you're flying. You're flying, you're flying, you're flying, you're flying. That's, that's what it is. That's what it is. So, so this is very much connecting with this notion that the Torah is given on the 50th day. And the fact that we're only counting to the 49th day. Because when we get to the 50th day, it's not the difference between 11 and 12 and 30 and 31 and 40 and 41. 49 to 50 is this quantum leap where God speaks out the Aleph, right? And takes us to a completely different realm. So I heard from the Moor Shemesh, he says, or maybe it was Rebbe Eger, he says that, that the word Neflaos, which means wonders, is actually, you can break it down, the first letter is Nun, which means 50, like the 50th day. And the, 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 the rest of that word is Pelos, which means wonders, like a Pella is a wonder. Right? So it's sort of like that, that the 50th day is this warehouse of wonders, where that divine flow goes down through the whole world for the rest of the year. Now listen to this. So we're saying that Neflaos wonders, like, which is this, which is Nun, which is the fiftieth day, and then Pelos, which is the, which is wonders. The the singular for um, wonders is Pella. A Pella is a wonder. So that's that's actually spelled Pe um, Lamed Aleph. A Pella. You'll see, or Fella. Sometimes it's it's it doesn't have the dot in it. You'll see, no sefele, God works wonders. It's, all, it's, it's actually a very common word, and it's all over the sitter. Or people conversationally will, like if you tell them a story that's like an amazing story, they'll say, it's a pella, right? Like, wow, it's a, it's a wonder. How did that happen? So I think it may be the Sefer Yitzir, I'm not sure, but it points out the fact that, that um, you know, what did we say happened on the 50th day? That God spoke out the Aleph, right? Do you know what Pella spelled backwards is? Aleph. <laughs> right? Because Pella backwards is Aleph, Lamed, Pe. 
Pella. Right? So what is a Pella? What is a wonder? When God manifests the Aleph. <laughs> when God takes that which is beyond and he manifests it in the world, this is a wonder. This is a wonder. See, but the Aleph is weaved throughout all of creation because it's what creation is actually made out of. God took, so to speak, this Aleph and formed it into this base, but the base is a subset of the Aleph. <laughs> the base of Rashis, this whole world, is just, just a, another manifestation of godliness. You see, this is why, this is why we have to have a, a, an increased appreciation for the mechanics of miracles. Because, because people think that a, a miracle is basically something that's happening from beyond that really isn't part of reality at all. But you see that the whole world is actually made out of miracles. And in fact, nature is an ongoing miracle. It's just one that we've gotten used to or bored of. <laughs> right? But if you really think deeply, you'll understand that nothing at all actually needs to happen. <laughs> like you say, well, of course that happened. That's, you know, of course I ran into that guy. He lives in the neighborhood. You know, there are a lot of people who live in the neighborhood, you never run into them. <laughs> and of course I keep running into this guy. You know why? Because I keep running into this guy. You can never run into that guy again. It's nothing has to happen. Anything that happens is actually miraculous. The only question is, have you gotten bored with it or not? <laughs> So, let's bring it back around to the way we started this talk with the, with the whole story of the bus. The bus arrives, and the same bus, you could have either been yelling and screaming at the bus driver, the same bus, same bus driver, same time, but instead they were like, oh, thank you, you're saving us. So... So let's just go a little bit more into this concept and we're going to wrap it up. <coughs> you see, we, we have that ability to see the pellas. And remember, neflaut, nun, nun, that's the 50th day that God reveals the Aleph, which is a wonder, which exists in this world and was always here, even before creation. It's just become revealed. Okay? The white fire olive becoming the black fire olive, right? So we have this ability, and this is a choice that we can consciously make and own, which is the following. And it sounds deceptively simple, but please don't be fooled by the simplicity of this. You can go through life seeing the world through the lens of what you have, or you can go through life looking through the lens of what you don't have. And that's 10,000% your choice every single moment. So let's just talk about the implication of that. You can walk down the street and you can, you can have the beauty of that tree. You can have the beauty of the sky, the beauty of the day, the beauty of the fact that, you're, that you have the ability to see, that you have legs that are walking, or ears that are hearing, or whatever it is. I was 
trying to work on this as I was walking down the street and I was like just loving the flatness of the sidewalk. Right? I mean, who says a sidewalk has to be flat? You know, back in the day, there were no roads and if it rained, it got muddy and it was a real drag. It was a, literally a drag to get from one place to another. You know, I mean, there's so much that we have. And most people, they only have something if they're given something. So if you give me $10, now I have $10, right? But if you have the ability to look around the world and to see what you have, then you're literally being given a press to print your own money. You can actually manufacture your own assets. Because all you're doing is looking around and you're looking, look at all that I have. Every, everywhere I walk, look what I have, look what I have. You're surrounded by riches. So, so again, but, but the key to implementing this into our lives is to understand that this requires effort. See, this is not how our brains are wired. So you can't hear this in a talk and expect that it's going to be part of your life one moment from now. In fact, the normal order of the world is that it will fly out of your head as soon as I finish the topic, and you may <laughs> never even think about it again. That, that, that is what I would call the, the normal order of things. If this sounds good to you, think about it, say, okay, I'm going to look at life from the standpoint of what I have, not from the standpoint of what I don't have. I'm going to choose to see the world that way. And I'm going to start, and here's the key word, actively appreciating. See, if you don't actively appreciate, and you don't have to do it out loud. You don't have to make other people crazy with your appreciating. You know what I'm saying? It can be an internal process, you know? This is not an invitation to drive other people crazy, okay? You go down and you actively appreciate what's around you and it will transform, it will transform everything. It will transform everything. And you know something? You'll become more of a magnet because people instinctively avoid those people who complain a lot. If people start complaining, other people don't want that energy. They, they, don't, they don't want it. They don't want it. If they see that someone is essentially in love with life, people are like, that, I want more of that. I can get more of that from that person than they just intuitively. They're drawn to that. So, so God should bless us that we should be able to see wonders, the, 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 the pella of, of our existence, which is really the aleph of our existence, which is the Torah, which is and was always here, and that we should take the opportunity to get on board this Aleph, which is open for us, and transcend from the black Aleph to the heights of the white fire Aleph, and to be able to straddle all the worlds. Now for some questions and answers. Because it's not 
because you said right. there's also spirituality right. that's underneath all of that. Right. So right. So good. So so the normally say normally we say in, in Hebrew it's Yeshmiyin, which means something out of nothing. But we know that God exists existed to begin with, and God is not a nothing, God is a something. So maybe it's more accurate to say God created nothing out of something. So that's that's not to say that um, that this world is uh, is 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 worthless or meaningless um, at all, because God created it for a purpose, and so and we and created us, and we're we're part of this world, and we know God put a piece of Himself inside of us. So, so I think that we have to have tremendous. Um, you know, one of the ways that it says of acquiring Torah is that you have to have covet, you have to have honor for God's creations, right? Um, covet of Rios, you know, this is a big concept in Torah. Um, so, so yeah, we, we're into this world, but we don't want to be myopic. We don't want to want to see this world at the exclusion of the, um, the greater sum total of reality. In other words, like I heard one time from, from uh, one of my teachers so beautifully, he said that for some people, this world is the most real thing, and the next world, not so much. Other people, this world is very real, and the next world is real. And for other people still, the next world is more real than this world. Right? So if we have in our own lives at whatever level accepted the fact that, that, um, that the next world actually exists, that there are um, that there are dimensions that are unseen. And by the way, you should know that that's not just the realm of religion anymore. Mathematics posits that. Physics posits that. Dimensions that exist that are unseen. So it's no longer that idea that that which is, that which, that it has to be seen in order to, for it to exist, that doesn't even exist in science anymore. You know, in terms of um, at the, the atomic and subatomic level, you know, as you get smaller and as you get bigger, you know, everyone acknowledges that, that there are things that are there that can't be seen anymore. You know, so it's just interesting that it just makes religion more and more mainstream, basically, in terms of, you know, secular academic understandings of the world. Um, but anyway, I think that for me, anyway, in terms of my development in terms of Torah thinking, right, has been saying, going from, okay, well, look, you know, Rabbi Noach Weinberg, the, the founder of Shalom of, of Isha Torah, used to say to his students, I heard, um, know what you know. Know what you know. See, there's, a, there's kind of a funny phenomenon, which is that sometimes a speaker will get up in front of a group, and I know this has been true for me many times, and he starts to say a thought that you heard him say before, or that you heard someone else say before, and then you stop listening. And so I used to say to myself, once that would happen, it's just my internal dialogue, I would say, if he stops speaking right now, could you go up there and finish his thought? And oftentimes, the answer would be no. Usually the answer would be no. And so then I'd say to myself, you didn't hear it the first time. What do you mean you already heard it? You didn't hear it the first time, because if you heard it the first time, you'd be able to go up there and finish his thought. So that, that's called knowing what you know. In other words, when you actually learn something, to actually be able to learn it, to, to, to know it, which means that you could be able to say it over. 
If you can't say it over, you don't know it yet. You, you heard it, but you didn't learn it. You heard it. You heard it. There's a huge gap between hearing it and knowing it. You want to get to the point where you actually know what you know. Because a lot of people hear something and then they put it in the category of, I know it. That's theft <laughs> and self-deception. You don't know it. So know what you know. If you're actually learning a concept, you have to go over it in your head until you know it. Okay, so with that as a background. We're always talking about the next world. But usually we're talking about the next world or the spiritual dimensions in the realm of amuna. Amuna meaning belief. Meaning, maybe it's there, maybe it's not. <laughs> I heard about it. Could be, but it's a fuzzy entity. But at a certain point, I don't know if I did this consciously, I said, wait a second. Do I believe, there's a, do I believe that I have a soul? Yes. Do I believe that my soul goes someplace? Yes. Well, where does it go? That means that there's a reality to dimensions beyond this world. So if it's there, it's there right now. It exists physically. I mean, it's a more refined form of physicality. But compared to the infinity of God, even the heavens, even the angels are physical. They're just way less physical than we are. But there's a physicality to them because there's an existence to them. Do you understand? So in other words, the spiritual worlds exist. They're there. Just like Missouri is there. Just like France is there. Just like Poland is there. The spiritual dimensions are there. Now once you start to think concretely, concretely about the existence of these spiritual realms, and then you realize how small this world is to... The other, the, the other greater reality, now all of a sudden you've got an honest perspective about this world, about our lives, about how we're using our time, and things like this. So, God forbid not to diminish the importance of this world. This world is very important, extremely important. However, we also have to put it into its proper framework, right? So, anyway. <laughs>